0: Episode 65 of Oscar Podcast. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from livingincinema.com, Ryan Adams, and me, Sasha Stone, from awardsdaily.com. We're going to be talking about the year 2006, when The Departed finally won Martin Scorsese, his long-awaited and overdue Oscar for Best Director and Best Picture. And uh, what movies we, that were also great that year. And we're just going to kind of do a quick rundown of 2006, and then we're going to um, ease into... A preview of the Cannes Film Festival. Actually, maybe we'll do Cannes first. Yeah,
1: we're gonna right, do let's a preview, do that.
0: yeah, of the Cannes Film Festival, and then we'll move on to to two thousand six. So, Craig, you want to do just do a quick rundown of the of the main selection at Cannes? We're, we're leaving. We're flying out. By the time you hear this, we'll already either be in the air or in France.
2: Or at the bottom of the ocean somewhere.
0: (laughs) Oh, (laughs) shut up. Oh, God, I disappeared. Wolf Blitzer will be talking about us. Oh, God, please no, God, please no. All right, knock wood. Okay.
2: Yeah, so let's, uh, so, you know, a lot of people are apparently bitching and moaning about this being a lackluster year for movies, but, you know, these are people who need to retire from talking about movies because (laughs) there's a lot of, great international stuff going on there there's not as many of the high profile films as there are sometimes I mean there's no Coen Brothers you know Alexander Payne that kind of thing but I mean we've got David Cronenberg's Maps to the Stars Yeah. um, Bennett Miller's Foxcatcher which I know a lot of people are excited about and uh, Tommy Lee Jones with The Homesman is this his first directorial effort since uh, the three burials of Melchiata Estrada Mm. or has he done something in between
0: I don't know, but uh, I'm really blown I, away by the. I can't think of anything offhand
1: that he did oh. in between. Should we IMDb it just so that we're not? Um, yes, s- I'll do that. Go ahead and keep talking. Right. And uh, you guys don't want to try to try to see the rovers, right?
0: Oh, I want to see that so bad. Yeah, yeah that looks great.
2: That's oh, by the new one from uh, the guy Michaud, who did Michaud, Animal or... Kingdom, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Michaud or Michaud? David yeah. Yeah. Michaud, yeah. David no, Michaud.
2: Um, but Olivier Assayas, who did one of my all time favorite films, Summer Hours, is going to be there with um, Clouds of Sils Maria. Um, Nuri Bilge Ceylan is going to be there. I already mentioned Cronenberg. Um, the Darden brothers um, have a film called Two Days, One Night, which I think is a sequel to Two Girls, One Cup. Okay, that was just a joke. <laughs> two yeah.
0: girls, one cock? What?
2: Two, <laughs> two girls, girls one, one cock. <laughs> it, it, it was scat porn that went around on the internet several years ago and nauseated everybody. <laughs> anyway.
0: I'm so um, not up on this stuff.
2: Adam McGoyan's going to be there with The Captive, which is yet another telling of the Memphis 3 story, right? <laughs> west memphis whatever the hell that is i'm just
0: laughing because craig when you brought that up last time what did you say
2: i don't even remember i'm just i'm I'm a little tired of hearing that particular story (laughs) um jean-luc godard is going to be there how can you not be excited about that i mean he's like even though his movies haven't really hit a wide audience for many many years he's like the king of french cinema just to have him being there is going to be awesome Mike Lay is going to be there. Mr. Turner can't wait to see that. That's going to be the night after opening night. So, Mm. Um, Ken Loach is going to be there. Nice. It's just I don't know. I I I I think it's going to be a great year. I don't care what any of the skeptics say.
0: Well, especially okay. since it's being mirrored with with yet another hideous superhero summer, where it's like, oh God! I mean, yes, Ryan, I know, I, I hear you when you say I, I I have to stop complaining about you know the superhero movies, but the thing is, and I and I should, but it's just like every day on Twitter, it's like, oh, Spider-Man Two, Star Wars, Godzilla the Avengers Captain America it's like oh my god really 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 this is it
1: and but- i would just try to tune out the things that you know are going to be kind of mediocre or substandard or just even average and just let's if we could just focus on the real on the on the ones that actually excel a little bit, because there are some of those, like once a year or so, there are two or, th- two or three of those that are really pretty good and, and really entertaining and, and, and do kind of push the envelope and try to raise the bar a little bit for these kinds of movies. But I understand totally what you're saying, that there are way too many of them, but there's really like way too many of all kinds of movies, So and we always only just focus on the best of, of all those movies, too, right. right?
0: I know, it shouldn't be World According to Sasha Stone for movies, you know, because... Look, I'm not the ticket buyers, right? I shouldn't even whine about it because I'm not the one shelling out cold, hard cash to go to the movies. I'm the one who gets to see movies for free. So lucky me, right? So I shouldn't be such a snob. I mean, this is what the people want and this is what they're going to keep getting. So, but But at the same time, I feel like... Godzilla is being talked about as one of the uh one of the one of one of the good ones you know and but to me i'm looking at that and i'm going okay so this is like this is like mcdonald's having interesting salads and us going okay you know what that's a really interesting salad that's almost (laughs) a really good salad wow that is kind of a really good salad at mcdonald's oh my god the salad at mcdonald's is so great you guys you got to go check it out
1: so it's so much better than all of this. So much better than other things at McDonald's, right? And yeah. So that's uh, just like not saying much. I understand that totally. But you know, at the same by the same token, you liked Planet of the Apes, right? A yeah, I love ago, it. And I you're probably it. looking forward to the sequel. And that's just a sequel of a of a franchise. That's I know. a remake of a thing. But but you like that, and right. so I know I'm a hypocrite. You know, there are those things that are that are that right <laughs> that rise above the rest.
0: Yes, and I'm a hypocrite. I will give grant you everything because I do think mm-hmm. that. um Planet of the Apes, and, and by all accounts, Godzilla is one of these, was a very clever, interesting movie from my perspective because it really took the science of chimpanzees into consideration. So it was smart. And I thought it was helping humanity in the message that it was giving. It wasn't mm-hmm. just, you know, jacking off. But um but yeah, right. I shouldn't be so snobby. I just I just get so tired of it. But it, you know, at the end of the day, this is this is the the Hollywood we're stuck with, just like
1: mm-hmm.
0: McDonald's, Burger King, Subway. You know, those are the food places you're stuck with if you're driving across the country. You don't really have any other choices, so you might as well make the best of it.
1: <laughs> yeah. I would get tired of it too if I paid much attention to it. But somehow I try to, I try to tune most of that noise out. And I know that I'm that I miss that I miss out on a lot of conversations that way. But you have so many more followers and so much going on in your timeline and twitter for instance that you cannot escape it i'm sure that you're like bombarded by it but i have a fraction of that going on in my timeline and so i can sort of like pretend like it doesn't exist unless it really does you know sparkle and then i then it catches my attention so but i understand that it's got to be just like especially you've been at this like three times longer than i have in a number of years you know you've been at this for a decade and, or more, 15 years For me it's a third of that time Well I've been alive a long time and... <laughs> <laughs> and I mean just on this, The online thing especially The online thing can just become so Wearying and that's one of The interesting things about the, the year 2006 is it's, it's really the first Year that I was really aware of Movie talk going on online I was able To avoid all that until just 2006 Right but so you know it's fairly it, recent
0: It's changed so much like when I was a kid I was like okay so Star Wars, the new Star Wars is coming out That's all anybody can talk about. Um, So when I was a kid, Star Wars, I was 10 years old and Star Wars came out. I loved it. I was totally one of those kids that helped create this blockbuster culture, Jaws and Star Wars. But there were so many other choices. And people went to the movies. Adults went to the movies. Well, we just have to face facts that adults aren't going to the movies anymore. They're watching TV. And so TV is great. But we used to have even five years ago um, more variety at the at the box office than we do now. It's like buddy comedy, superhero movie, buddy comedy, superhero movie. The occasional hideous rom com aimed at women, and then the mm-hmm. like mainstream black cinema. You know, like about single black women or or you know black culture that white people don't go see those movies most of them. So. That's pretty much your box office now. You, there, there's just no variety. There's no people... There's no one's taking really... Ch- and yes, granted, this is the early part of the year, and nobody ever pulls out their movies this early, but usually there's a lot more variety than, than what we're seeing the last couple of years. That's all I'm saying. It's like I just... I'm lamenting change. It's like crying about there not being any newspapers anymore. You know? Mm-hmm. It's like
1: but and also there's just this just the fact that 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 we like to be writing and talk about movies year round and 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 this is a real dry spell for really things that are worth talking about from from march until august or september it's a dry spell and so we it's like we're like trying to milk a rock or something you know, <laughs> but out of a turnip and,
0: exactly and, and that's why um it is so refreshing because it does offer kind of the, what the world used to look like before it became a landscape of, of these tentpole films I mean to even say in the same breath like Craig just did Ken Loach and Jean-Luc Godard I mean come on that's like and David Cronenberg I mean this is this is the cinema that I grew up into that I came of age into This is the, these are the kind of films that were inspiring the filmmakers who are making films today so uh, to to go back to that to go to can i mean to me anybody should the, who writes about film because you it's a palate cleanser now the thing about can that people are in my field are going to be talking about is is whether it has any oscar impact at all which again meaningless since the oscars are mostly meaningless but people still want to know after last year's nebraska all is lost and inside Lewin davis did you know middling oscar Business by the time they finally got to to the academy inside, Lewin Davis completely shut out inexplicably, um, annoyingly, and um, all is lost. Mostly shut out again inexplicably. Robert Redford tragically, should have gotten tragically, out. For tragically, both of those, yeah. These are great movies that should not have been ignored, and their success is measured now by whether or not they got to the big show, which is a dumb way to measure success. But there it is. And the only one that kind of did well was Nebraska, which got a nomination, but it never really it didn't get the win that Bruce Dern was hoping. It certainly didn't get the Best Picture win that I thought it might have a chance at doing. And so you got to wonder if Nebraska had suddenly launched and Telluride, would it have made a bigger splash? And and the thing that people don't take into account a lot of times when they're looking at the Oscar races. It isn't just about t- t- it isn't just about the movie. It's also about the timing and the mood and of the audience that's seeing that movie at that time, and that's unpredictable. That's an unpredictable thing. You don't know where people's heads are going to be at. You don't know what's going to be happening in the country. You don't know what's going to be capturing the zeitgeist at that very moment that your film is launched. Sometimes you get lucky. Like 12 Years a Slave did when it hit Telluride. I mean, if 12 Years a Slave had opened in Cannes, there's no way it would have won Best Picture, probably. It wouldn't have been able to capture that buzz because you couldn't get an international audience to be so excited about it as, as that one audience in Telluride, that one day that happened to see it when Brad Pitt flew in with that movie. That was a special thing, and it launched, same with Argo, the year before. So people are going to be looking at that, and they're going to go, okay, so can isn't going to work for us because it's too early in the year. The buzz is going to die down, and not only do you have to impress the American critics, but you have to impress all those like persnickety British critics who are really annoying, and all of the other European critics or critics from all over the world. And so that's harder to do. So once the cat's out of the bag about a movie, um, it's harder and harder to build that buzz, whereas Telluride is mostly American critics a lot of them Oscar bloggers, and it's the perfect place to launch your potential best picture. So people are going to be looking at Can to that degree, and they're going to be going. Why even bother spending all that money? It's a huge waste of money. It doesn't have any impact on the Oscar race. It's not going to affect box office. These movies you can see any Publicists beg you to see them as soon as the months roll by. All of that is true. But if you love cinema, if you claim to... If you're spending your time writing about something that you love, then you better get your fucking ass over there to see all those movies at at ground zero when they happen, so that not only can you help to spread the word about them and change perhaps the landscape of the discussion of cinema, but you can also refresh your own mind and remember what cinema as art, not branding, not entertainment, not pop culture consumption, but art is all about.
2: That's, That's the beauty great way of it to, it to me is that is that can doesn't give a crap about U.S. box office. It doesn't give a crap about the Oscars. It doesn't give a crap about the superhero movies. It doesn't give a crap about any of the stuff that totally sucks the air out of the room the other fifty weeks of the year in the terms of the the movie conversation. And so even though. You can like all of those things. You can love the Oscars. We obviously talk about it every week, so we've got a stake in it. And you can love summer movies, and you can love all these other different things. But Cannes is like this pure movie candy store that's just all about the movies. It's all about the art, and there's just uh, the history of it, and there's just this indescribable excitement of seeing of just being there knowing what's gone on there before and what it means to the world and to the world of cinema it's just you know usually it's it's a thing that i'd wanted to do my entire life up until last year and usually when you have those big dreams when you finally get to do something like that it's never quite as good is what you imagine it's going to be but this was an example of where it was actually better. I totally didn't want to come home. I just wanted to stay there and just keep going to movies. It was just mm. it was the greatest thing. And I think like Sasha was saying if you love movies, I think you need that little jolt because it, the rest of it can be so deadening and so exhausting and it's so easy to forget why we love movies and what really does matter about them.
0: And it goes without saying that a lot of you know most people can't afford to go. So we have to also talk about that. The expense of going to Cannes is ridiculous, and everybody knows that. So it is for the privileged few. It is a privilege. and if you, But if you're somebody who writes for a major movie website and you're getting paid a lot of money and you don't go because you think it's not going to be Oscar worthy, that's really what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about people like you know who would really like to go but can't afford to go and would love That's to go. You
1: know what I like so much about your coverage, Sasha, and yours, too, Greg, is that you not only just review the movies and talk about the movies, but you talk about the experience and your your journals and your diaries. It enables people to to experience can vicariously, right, in a way that I think don't think that a lot of that a lot of movie sites are able to, are take the time to do. Yeah. A lot
2: that's of people sweet. just want Thank to tweet you. out their instant response to whatever the newest movie is and that's the, the main thing is getting their opinion out there but they're, I think they're sort of missing the boat a little bit too. I think if you don't just stop and smell the roses and just enjoy the experience. That you're you're doing yourself a disservice.
1: When you guys plan your itinerary and plan your plan your movies and plan what you're going to see each day, I know that you that the things that you mentioned, Craig, already the titles titles that you mentioned that you know that you want to see. Do you ever try to factor in and some some wild cards and how do you choose those? Because I'm sure there's, there, those are the things that are the most interesting to me. Looking back, especially over over Cannes history, the things that come out of the blue, the the, the directors that, that maybe not even have been um, household names, as the, like the ones that you mentioned. Who, who, who astonished people for the first time with a camp premiere. And how can, you, how can you even catch on to the buzz for those movies and know that that's what you need to try to see?
2: That's the thing is that it's, for me, it was impossible to see everything that I wanted to see. I mean, it, everything's scheduled so that I think, theoretically, you could see everything, mm-hmm. but especially as the festival went on, I totally just hit a wall and ran out of gas. And I was at a certain point. I was seeing stuff and not writing about it. And I had just been kind of completely worn out. But um, they show the movies more than once, so a lot of times, if you miss the hot screening, you'll hear about it hours later, and then you'll pencil that one in, you know, to see the next time around when it plays again. So because yeah. everybody's always everybody's always buzzing about whatever it has been that they've seen, good or bad. That's a
1: Great answer. See, I didn't I didn't even think about that. The fact that there are there are are repeat screenings that they that they do more than one screening so people who see something the word gets around in the next couple of days before they show it again then everyone's clamoring for that ticket right? Yeah
2: exactly that's what happened last year with um, Blue, Blue is the Warmest Color, color. Yeah. it, it yeah. Um, made such a noise the first night that, that it, it, the subsequent screenings of it were even more popular
1: I mean can you just imagine being in Canada in 1976 not even knowing or just barely being aware of who Martin Scorsese was mm-hmm. and he shows up with a Taxi Driver
0: Right, I know.
1: god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, things... there people who probably think a taxi driver, I'll just skip that, you know. Yeah, but...
0: right, right, exactly. And and but it's also funny how blue is the warmest color could've made such a huge splash and then and then really just sort of kind of faded when it hit over here in a way. I don't know, it's funny. It's funny how it could have been so hyped in Can and then but then you gotta figure that a lot of those guys are young, you know, young ish horny dudes you know and and so a lot of that i think was around just the sexuality of something especially dried out american films which are so non-sexual these days like argo for instance i know i keep picking on argo but even silver lining's playbook it's like oh at the most she talks a little bit dirty about sex in the office but you know this our film Colleagues, you know they're just done, They're just not used to see. Don't be worried <laughs> so about talking sex. about silver linings
1: play, but because you know that scene about having sex in the office, that was even barely in the book, and so that was just played up and exaggerated mainly for the trailer, so that that could be in the trailer, and you could have Jennifer Lawrence talking about lesbian sex in the trailer, yeah. and then you go see the movie, and there's nothing like that in the movie. It's like right. a, it's like bait and switch almost, you know. Well, because so, in America
0: everything has to be PG-13 now, everything mm-hmm, to make mm-hmm. money. So that's why go to can and seeing a movie like Blues. Color was just like whoa, because you know they, you're just not used to seeing that anymore in our in our hideous. Um Dumbed down film industry, which has to have it, um, you know, acceptable to Christian mothers who are sending their 13 year old boys to the movies. You know, that's re- not sorry, not picking on Christians. Sorry, sorry, our dear Christian <laughs> listeners, I don't mean to pick on you. I'm just saying, like, it has to be, you know, it can't be that kind of tawdry thing because nobody will go see it. So, sex has been all but vacuumed out of American cinema, and uh, and so in it, but it hasn't internationally, of course, because it's a huge part of the human experience and it's worth exploring. Um, and certainly Blue is the Warmest Color freaked the shit out of everybody. (laughs) Mm. Whereas you contrast that with the movie that I think was one of the better films at Cannes that got no attention, no awards buzz, nobody's talking about, but I think in 10 years people are going to be talking about it, and that's um, The Bling Ring by Sofia Mm. Coppola, which I think was completely disregarded by everybody, and that's a good example of a movie that goes to Cannes to die. It literally died because, again, just like here, you're appealing to a certain demographic, and if you don't land with that demographic, your movie is not going to get the hype. So basically, if you're aiming for critics in this country, you're aiming for 28 to 49-ish white kind of shut in american male with limited life experience maybe a wife a few girlfriends here or there perhaps some college maybe some failed dreams of becoming a filmmaker um seeped in fanboy culture um because of growing up on star wars and and uh, raiders of the lost ark and jaws and all of these movies and even scorsese and tarantino and um that's it. That those are the people that you have to impress if you want to go to Cannes and come back to America and have a movie that people buzz about. That's that's your best bet. Ba- They're no, not going to buzz about a movie about, for instance, two Romanian girls who are put in a convent and one of them dies. For um, when they have to like pr- listen to me, I sound like some like droning on FM radio <laughs>
1: snob. <laughs> but I know what you mean. I'm <laughs> to me. totally also- not that person. <laughs> There's also the (laughs) burden of expectations when when your name is Coppola, you know, and you show up. Not only are people going to be um, expecting... Something to just blow them away, and not something that's subtle and low key. But they're also going to be really on guard and really, really almost like, uh, like hawkishly looking for something that, that with any trace of pretension about it. And I believe that that's hurt her. Didn't 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 uh, Marie Antoinette have a sort of rocky pre- uh, reception? It again? got booed. That was the, yeah. that was
2: actually the the year that we're about to talk about. Marie Antoinette was booed, and that was pretty much the death of that movie. It was mm-hmm. never taken seriously again, and um, it's totally misjudged. It's a really terrific picture. So
1: that is the one one disadvantage, I think, to Ken, is that it does have the ability not only to to give a film a firm foundation, but it can also really undermine a film in ways that it's really almost impossible to recover from. Mm. I know that The Great Gatsby had absolutely lots and lots of flaws, and there's no way a great masterpiece like we expected Baz Luhrmann to to deliver, but I think it's a really, really tough spot to, to be opening night film at the Cannes Film Festival because everyone, first of all, everybody's jet lagged and they're, they've just got off the plane and they're showing up and they're expecting to be some, to be blown away on the first night. And unless that movie just really knocks people's socks off, then it's going to be, it's going to have a, a mad reception, you know? And that happened to, that happened to the Great Gatsby this, last year, I think. And I think it's it's primed to probably happen to the Princess of Monaco. It happened to
0: Tree of Life, remember? But Tree of Life totally rebounded from that, you know? That's true, yeah. I remember people were freaking out about tree of life being like booed a can you know because you're right they do they have french people especially tend to be really um vocal about their reaction and if they hate the movie they're going to say so you know but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the the end of the movie for here it just with gatsby yeah because it was an american star and no artistic well so it was an ambitious
1: film for sure but and Gatsby went on to be pretty, pretty well regarded. I mean, as far as, as with audience reception, it was it made a lot of money. It made a lot of money, and it ended and it up won with, with two three Oscar Oscars. nominations. Two and it Oscars. won more Oscars than Inside Lewin Davis, <laughs> you know, which is incredible to think. But it, it almost
0: won more Oscars than Twelve Years a Slave.
1: I know. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. It'll, It'll be interesting to though say, to see
2: how Grace of Monaco does because. Um, it, like you say, it's not. In, in that opening night slot. It has sort of, um, there's a certain amount of glitz to it because of uh, what's-her-name, Nicole Kidman, and um, the director's previous f- uh, film, La Vie en Rose, was so huge that I think there's a lot of potential expectations about it, but there's a lot of controversy, too, because the director and Harvey Weinstein are, are fighting about what cut of the film is going to be released. I'm assuming... That the director's cut will show it can because Harvey doesn't have anything to do with it, but um, it'll be interesting to see what version gets shown to American audiences. And and it just seems like the kind of movie that's sort of tailor made for for Oscar traction, but it already seems to be. It's been delayed and there's the controversy. It just kind of it almost seems dead on the water already. Do
1: we, do we know any details about what Harvey is going to do to it? Is it just going to be a matter of shortening it or is it going to be restructuring or, or, or whats like what's the comparison between the running times? Do we know? No idea.
0: It's uh, also um, it was shown some footage of it was shown last year and the reception was not very good. Remember Craig when we showed they showed footage from it?
2: Yeah, I'd sort of block that whole experience out of my mind, but yeah, that was sort of hideous.
0: <laughs> People were just like, "Oh my God, this is a disaster! This movie's a disaster!" So the that's- only
2: the only movie that they should this was, this was a uh, for those of you keeping score at home, this was a Weinstein presentation at some hotel where they plied everybody with food and cocktails and then ushered us into this auditorium thing or conference room thing to to watch clips of all of their upcoming movies, most of which were actually playing at Cannes, and I remember the only movie that got any really positive response at all, I think, was um... um... Crap, what was the, uh, Nicholas For- Winding Refn film? Uh,
1: Only Not- God Forgives.
2: Only God Forgives. That got the best reaction, and it turns out that the scene that they showed was actually the best scene in the entire terrible movie.
0: It was a terrible, 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 terrible movie.
2: But, yes. um... Yeah,
0: so... That doesn't necessarily. Nicole Kidman actually showed up at that party. Like they were planning on launching it then, so that's why it seems strange that it's just coming now. They must have hacked the shit out of it. That's all I can think. It's I'm seeing
1: hacked. the running time now. that's listed on IMDb is 103 minutes. So I don't see how it can be cut down any shorter than that. It would be ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So 103 minutes must be the the post scissoring cut that were that they're that they're listing there. But I, what I understand is the, is the uh, original director's cut is a lot darker. It's a lot, you know, gloomier and darker, and 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 more, maybe more depressing. Yeah. And, you know, Weinstein doesn't like that, right? Because not a if depressing want, movies
2: wants an Oscar,
1: right? Because de- depressing movies just don't 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 sell,
0: right? And also, I mean, think about it. It's uh, it's uh, you're you're dealing with a, a pretty touchy subject here, and I, I trust Weinstein's instincts when it comes to how a movie's going to fare with the kind of audience he's thinking of. Like, who's going to go see this movie? It's not going to be stupid fanboys, right? They're not going to go pay tickets Mm -hmm. to see this. It's going to be the senior set. So your best bet is to make a movie that the senior set is going to like. Well, the senior set is going to want to see a movie that's flattering about um, uh, Grace Kelly. I don't know what what the movie's going to say or what it's going to talk about, what the point of it is, why even make the movie at all. I have no idea why they're doing it. But um, I guess we'll find out. But um, but the, but I think that that in his mind he's looking more at less for Oscar here and more for making money, for making. The...
2: Is, that's his job.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. So to make any any money on the movie, I think is going to be a plus. I don't think it's going to go anywhere Oscar wise. I really don't. Not after the weird trend. The weird um all this shit that's been going down
1: i just have confirmation i believe i need to double check this and get a get a second opinion but it looks like that the festival has chosen to screen the original director's cut because it's actually there's french law there's a french law that says that for a french director has to be able to be to show his director's cut that somebody from outside can't tamper with it so that's actually legislated in france so isn't that fantastic that's amazing. That makes me
2: 100% more interested in seeing it because I have a feeling it's not going to be easy to see. Maybe, maybe when the DVD finally comes out, but it'll be nice to see it as intended, for better or for worse.
1: hmm Yeah, it'll be amazing, probably. Mm. I was really impressed with what I saw last year when what I saw and what I've seen in the clips and trailers and everything. I think it's just incredibly elegant and stylish looking. It's an amazing looking to me. It's People bitch and je-
2: moan because she doesn't look like Grace Kelly, but that's why they uh, call it the acting. Losers.
1: Really, that's the least of my worries. <laughs>
2: you always get that whenever somebody plays somebody famous there's always the inevitable grumbling about how they don't look like the person it's like well you know they're not the person they're giving a performance as the person and if it's a good performance you're gonna buy it so just shut up sit there and take it and then if you don't like it afterwards then you can bitch about it but at least wait until see it
1: i actually let that discourage me from seeing my week with Marilyn because people were complaining about that so much but i mean i did recently see it and what an incredible performance Michelle Williams gives, and, yeah. my, and she absolutely—the personality is, is just is, comes through so clearly that you just forget entirely about appearance, and you just start to feel the 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 the, uh, the aura of the of the character of the person of the real life person come through her.
0: Well, I think it ma- makes a bigger difference when the person is somebody who's known as the most beautiful woman in the world. I mean, Grace Kelly, mm-hmm. and the thing is is people know her face so well and we're you know so much of the way why people love her is just because of the way she looks so that's that's the, i think the rub there but nicole kidman she got the same kind of flack for virginia wolf and nobody thought virginia wolf was so beautiful and so i think that you know i think people do get hung up on that i know i'm one of those people for sure i do get hung up on it doesn't look like the person and they can't capture that person but and i always think there's somebody who could play them better like i always thought that um Jessica Chastain was the one who should play Marilyn, and she's gonna play her, and I think she's the right choice. To me, she has. But I thought Michelle Williams was great, given what she, given given that she doesn't have the Marilyn thing in her, but she she did a great job as an actress to bring it to life. Mm-hmm. Same with Nicole Kidman for Virginia Woolf. You know, she brought that character to life. She really did. So maybe she'll do the same with Grace Kelly. Maybe. But we'll you're, out. you're always yeah, going to yeah, be looking at her face going, she doesn't look like Grace Kelly in the least bit, you know, just because... You if know. it's a
2: good performance, though, you, I think, for me at least, I forget that after a while. It's like, okay, the first few minutes, you're aware that you're watching an actress or an actor doing their thing. But if they're really good, then you, you get sucked into it. I mean, uh, yeah. what's his name? Uh, Jesus, my brain tonight is just terrible. Philip Seymour Hoffman didn't didn't look particularly a lot like Truman Capote, but because he captured the voice and the mannerisms, and the personality and his peculiarities, it it, it totally worked. It's, and he if he still she looked can like Philip that. Seymour Hoffman, but it was you forget you would forget that you were watching Philip Seymour Hoffman after a while.
0: But there's very there are very few actors, um, um, and Michelle Williams wasn't one of them. By the way, she made Marilyn go. She made her uh, it was a great performance, but she made her her own she right. didn't impersonate Marilyn, and like he did with with truman capote because very few actors can actually pull that off that are good enough mimics meryl streep is one very few of them can actually do that voice for voice movement for movement everything capturing that person perfectly i from the trailer that i saw with nicole kidman and can she did not do that with grace kelly but that's fine i mean you're it's the same with uh, naomi watts and, and princess diana like you just have to suspend your disbelief and try to understand what they're trying to tell you about this person in their life, not I'm watching someone imitate Grace Kelly, because they're not gonna be able to do it,
1: you know. One advantage that Michelle Williams had too is that she she in the movie she was able to she portrayed Marilyn off screen and we rarely got a chance to see Marilyn off screen. We didn't we none of us saw Marilyn off screen. All we know is her on screen persona and so uh, it, it left a lot of, uh, open to interpretation for Michelle Williams to imagine what Ms., uh, Marilyn would have been like off screen. Yeah, for sure. I mean, because there, was there is different footage. Person.
0: There's footage of her, not... Um, yeah. True. But but yeah, I think you're right about that. Plus, she what she did was smart. Like, she knew she couldn't look like her or imitate her, but she found a genuineness and an honesty in her that, that rang true. You know, it just did. You didn't, you didn't spend your time watching her going, oh my God, she doesn't look like Marilyn. You spent your time Absorbed in her story and in her character, and I. Think and I
1: gotta it... say too, the people who really look too much like the characters that they're portraying can kind of creep me out. It's almost like a wax museum come to life. And I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of Meryl Streep, really. I'm thinking of Margaret Thatcher, and I'm thinking of Julia Child. Those kinds of movies that are, it's almost like mimicry, and it's almost like it's like too much. Um, I don't like the overdone makeup and the, and the too much on, on the nose portrayals because it doesn't seem to leave much to to artistic interpretation.
0: Well, I got to disagree with you there because I, I think you're right about Iron Lady, but not about Julia Child. I thought that, that her Julia Child was one of the best performances just because, yes, she did do all the looks and the, and the mannerisms and stuff, but she found she... Meryl Streep, that's a good example of why Meryl Streep is a better actress when she likes the character she's playing because... She found something to love in, um, in Julia Child, and she brought that forth. And just like she played Miranda Priestly in Devil Wears Prada, who's not a particularly likable character, she found what she liked about her, and she brought that forth. I think she had a really hard time finding anything to like about Margaret Thatcher and bringing it forth. She, hmm. she tried, but it didn't, it didn't quite come off as authentic. But, God, I loved her as Julia Child. I could watch her for hours playing that part. That's just my personal opinion that I thought she was fantastic in that. Right.
2: It was another example where people recognized the the screen persona of a character, but Meryl brought to life her private life and her relationship with her husband and all of those different things, whereas with Thatcher, it always seemed like she was playing the Thatcher we always saw on TV.
1: And that's right. the same thing that happened with um, Oliver Stone's W. When I, When all of the characters in a movie are saying things that you've heard quoted endlessly, and mocked endlessly on, on in the news. That you're, you first of all, your script is in trouble when you're just when you're just parroting. That's what it becomes for me. It becomes like like a bunch of parrots on screen.
2: Right. It seemed like a bad Saturday Night Live sketch. <laughs> exactly. That, that there thing.
1: you go. Yeah.
0: So what else? What else? I'm really, really looking forward to um, the Cronenberg movie with Julianne Moore losing her shit. <laughs> it looks so great, doesn't it? Um, the Maps to the Stars. That just looks so fantastic. That movie, totally campy and weird, and Cronenberg off the hook.
1: Cronenberg back to Cronenberg as he was, you know, fifteen, twenty years ago, right?
0: Right, right. Just totally nuts. And she, she just looks like she's, she's. I mean, I don't, know, I can't even make out what the plot is. I think it's like. Um, Mia Was- Wasikowska is like a young girl who gets involved with somehow with Julianne Moore, and then also with some with Robert Pattinson. And Julianne Moore and Robert Pattinson are having an affair. Something to do with that,
2: right?
1: Um, I
2: haven't. Um, I'm. I've been as soon as the movies are announced, I've been full on blackout.
1: it great that you do that, and it's amazing that you're able to do that, Craig. You just absolutely can can shut that out. Wait, well, I see in each that's, trailers. That's the other...
2: The other great thing about going is that I remember in 2007 when um, No Country for Old Men came out, and it, it debuted at Cannes, and I had to, the world was just like this minefield of No Country for Old Men spoilers. and I didn't even want to watch the trailer, let alone hear people's stupid opinions about it or spoil the ending or all kinds of stuff. So it was like six months that I had to dodge these these internet movie bullets and that's but going there and seeing the movies for the first time i didn't have to worry about that like with um lewin davis last year i could just luxuriate in it for months already having seen it without having to worry about having anything ruined
1: that's great. I'm kind of like just the opposite. As soon as I can lay my hands on a script or any kind of uh, advance information or, or read the novel in advance, I want to do that. You know, so I'm I like to do my homework in advance. So I'm and there's I'm not surprised by anything in the movie plot-wise, and so that I'm just enjoying it on a whole another level because I've already I've already read it. You know, I've already I've already pl- played it out in my mind, and I just like to see how different it is from what the movie that I was playing in my head for the past six months.
2: I come to find that that's the normal routine for, for for people who aren't like movie OCD like I am. They um, they um, watching the trailers and reading the screenplays and reading the casting bits and all that stuff is is actually a part of the enjoyment of the movie, so that it spreads out your enjoyment over the course of several months. Where for me it's like denial, 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 and then a crashing orgasm, and then that's- it's all over
1: it does it's, not only does it spread out the enjoyment but I think it can kind of enhance my enjoyment like I believe that, that it helps me enjoy movies more because I have I know about a lot of background sometimes or you can pick up on a lot of background from reading the novel that is maybe not be, that's maybe not on screen it may be not it be in the movie but you're but but you but you reading into it you're reading between the lines and so that's why sometimes it seems like I have an inflated opinion of certain movies that we won't even mention because we only not get into that but I mean I have an inflated opinion of those movies because I've already I can feel in the blanks that may not be on screen for most people right and i like to do that you know i like to i like to meet the director more than halfway
0: well i know i I feel the same about that the the early hype and stuff i the thing is is internet ruins movies for me now like i would have been excited for godzilla if i hadn't been reading everything about having to hear everybody's stupid opinion before i ever even saw the movie it's like i don't want to hear all that shit i don't care what they think it's so annoying. Here's my precious review of Godzilla. I lay it at your feet. Please read it.
1: <laughs> like because the this, Ten Commandments. This
0: is the gospel of the fanboy. Not just the
1: fanboy, <laughs> but the What well, I fanboy find it really interesting about Godzilla is it, there's been like thirty five or forty different Godzilla movies and they, they are all of such varying quality and some of them are just so campy and silly and ridiculous and absurd. That they're that they're enjoyable just because they're so bad some of them I mean there's some really really bad Godzilla movies but the first one that came out the first one that even came out before the American remake of the first Japanese movie had a lot of depth to it because it was Japan coming to grips with the, with the the nuclear bomb you know it was just four or five five or six years or maybe ten years after after Hiroshima and but, so but, but, that, but can
0: we just stop for a moment and behold the fanboy behold here is my review of Godzilla. I mean, that is really like what, what you're seeing on, the, on, on Twitter all night. Like, Godzilla, like, I think it was like one guy wrote like 10 tweets that all said the same thing about it. And then another guy, here's my review of Godzilla. It's like they all got, I mean, and I shouldn't talk because when it's Oscar season, the Oscar bloggers do the same thing. Here's my review of
1: Nebraska
0: behold But it is okay
1: opinion. to do that once or twice and i think it's another is another impulse for people to have this like i'm first you know i've seen Ugh, this movie that, so you, that you're not going to yes, be able to see for another week or 10 days i know i
0: know i know i know
1: but i but i'm saying that that's not a good thing i don't like that either I really don't, I, I, it's really aggravating and annoying.
0: Well, in this case, like for the Oscar bloggers, for instance, it's about positioning the film in the awards race, okay? Full yeah. on. In the mm-hmm. fanboy's case, it's about being a fluffer. It's about hyping people up to pay money, may pay more money so it'll have a big opening weekend. That's the game. So mm-hmm. if they can get a movie to number one, you know, that shows that they have reach. And, and a lot of times they can kill a movie if the fanboy's no likey, right? Mm-hmm. Then you're in mm-hmm. trouble because they don't bestow this great review they they squat and they take a big steaming pile of shit on it <laughs> and then the movie can't ever make that opening box office and it's done right so it's a risk that you take but like Lone Ranger for yeah, instance yeah but but the, or or it's mixed like with uh, Planet of the Apes was kind of mixed but here's Godzilla Godzilla's going to do fucking bang bang up business because it's uh it's uh it's gotten you know behold the fanboy approval And so you read even on IndieWire where it's supposedly about real critics, it's like, The reviews for Godzilla are smashing. Like, everybody loves it. It's going to do really well. It's going to make a whole shit lot of money. It's going to be like $300 million, blah, blah, blah.
1: You know, really, Godzilla is like one of these things, and there's two or three movies like this every year that are bulletproof. It doesn't matter really what the critics or the bloggers say about them. They're just, there are such events in the way that they're sold and marketed because marketing has become so Ah, but it does.
0: It does. That's why Mm -hmm. Behold the Fanboy, it does make a difference because word. they call it the Twitter effect. Word travels so, I mean, yeah, Yes, it's true that that sometimes bad reviews can't take a movie down but 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 it it, it does affect opening weekend if if, it, if if it travels really fast through people with hundreds of thousands of followers it does make a difference they won't pay the money whereas in this case of godzilla think of the hundreds of thousands of people who are following people like devin Faraci and chris tapley and ann thompson and you know the uh, harry Knowles or drew mcweeney or any of these guys where it's like they have hundreds of thousands of followers among them. And then they share their tweets and they share their tweets. And so by the time opening weekend comes up, right. Think of it like the fluffer standing I, beh- I on the be- behind the scenes the hundreds of the thousands
1: porn. may be an overestimate because it's no, not as if I think they, all have, the 80, I think they all have the same 80,000 followers. I think I'm just saying
0: that what they can do, it can't destroy a movie, but it can make a difference in terms of, of giant opening box. So like neighbors, for instance, look at neighbors, neighbors did better than Spider-Man this past weekend, right? Mm-hmm. Spider-Man, the reviews were kind of lackluster from the fanboy set, you know. But neighbors off the charts fanboy right. fangasm. Oh, I agree. I'm so, not saying
1: that this is negligible or, or, or not substantial uh, that effect. I'm just saying that I think that Godzilla does, wouldn't have anything to worry about. It would be really hard to bring. No, Godzilla but it'll down. be
0: it'll probably be a lot bigger because of this. I mean, it's pro- possible that it's good enough. Word of mouth would have carried it, but they don't care about word of mouth anymore. They want opening weekend. So that's why the fanboys mm-hmm. are so important because they start that buzz so much earlier now, and that's what they want. They want those opening numbers, and that's exactly why the fanboys
1: are important and the Twitter is important, because of the well, opening yeah, weekend mean, only.
0: Not because yeah, of the we, ultimate we, we, take.
1: We, and we saw that just a couple of weeks ago happened with Transcendence because word got out that Transcendence was a stinker. Yeah. And it was actually the truth. And people just think, well, I'll just wait, I'll skip that movie. And yeah, exactly. you know, i have to save my money because mm-hmm. there's other things to do and it'll be on, you know, D V D soon yeah, anyway.
0: Yeah. So anyway, from my perspective, which doesn't mean anything. I mean I'm basically like an ant, one of the ants on the ant hill. Like I couldn't I couldn't mean less what I think, honestly. So it doesn't matter that when I read all that stupid hype from the fanboys, it makes me not want to see the movie because again I'm not the one buying the tickets, you know? These are people who want to go out and have fun on Friday night. You know, let's go see Godzilla. It looks like fun. That's not mm-hmm. me. I'm like, where can I go kill myself on Friday? I <laughs> know, just
1: kidding. <laughs> it's I'm bad. just really glad. I'm really glad that uh, Dottoro was able to come out with Pacific Rim a year ago, so that Pacific Rim was not judged against Godzilla, but it's the other way around. Because I think that kind of Godzilla was taken away from him, and so he we thought, well, I'll just do my own thing, my own Godzi- my own spin on the Godzilla mythology, and and that way I'll, I'll avoid. You know, the, and and do it faster and come out a year sooner, and so I won't have to be in competition because we all like Pacific Rim, right? I, th- I mean, I, I did. Think we did. I liked it. We okay,
0: it. I liked it because yeah. it was original. You know, and it yeah, wasn't... that's
1: the thing. It was original.
0: But that you take a huge chance when you're dealing with original material. But anyway, so so what have what else have we got on the slate? Well, we've got to talk quickly about um, before we get to 2006. We'll talk about. Uh, uh, Foxcatcher, which is really the big Oscar movie that everybody's going to be waiting to see. And that looks fantastic, doesn't it? Bennett Miller, um, Steve Carell looks like he's giving an amazing performance, creepy story. You know, I mean, he, Bennett Miller has, has yet to direct a bad movie. So Foxcatcher
1: um, looks so good that we actually thought when it was going to come out last December, we actually thought it was going to be a threat to everything else. You know, I think we were worried about that it might be knocking out some of our other favorites, and I think that they may have seen that they didn't want to go up against the big guns that were already well-established, like Gravity and like 12 Years a Slave, and obviously that's why they held off on it, but I think it's going to be in that league. I was going to ask you guys if you wanted to go out on a limb and say which of the movies that, that are going to be a can do you think are going to go all the way and run the gauntlet and, and make it on through Oscars, and Fox Foxcatcher is obviously number one on that list, right? yeah
0: yeah one thing and so
2: i was a little skeptical about it because i didn't like moneyball as much as everybody else did for reasons that probably don't make any sense and aren't really even that important after all but i after re-watching capote for the podcast a few weeks back i'm I'm back on team bennett miller so i'm hoping that it's uh i'm hoping that it's great i like, once again i know absolutely nothing about it but i hope it's terrific
1: uh, and really, looking over the slate, looking over the, the lineup, I, it's we know unfortunately that none of the none of the foreign language films are going to be probably are going to be another Amour, right? It's not that's not going to happen again. Where a, a movie that, that a foreign language film that premieres at Cannes this this next week is is going to make it all the way to the Oscars because that just rarely ever happens. I don't see anything offhand that looks like that. Do you?
2: Mike Lee could. I don't know anything about his film. Um, I would say, though, that it, that's not a foreign language.
1: Oh. Yeah.
2: I was considering foreign film in general, not yeah. foreign. Yeah, language.
1: I know what you mean. Yeah, I, but you're right. I think that's probably because he's, he's been at the Oscars before. Right. Yeah. So, but I'm not, offhand, I'm not seeing anything that looks like any other, that's in any other language other than English that might make it all the way to the Oscars.
2: The Dardans are heavy hitters in terms of the art house crowd, but they're not mm. ever really, I don't think they've ever have they ever been nominated for anything ever at the Oscars.
1: Can no. think? Oh, but to answer your question before about has, has Tommy Lee Jones ever directed anything else since uh, three burials, uh, two or three years ago on television, on HBO, he directed Sunset Limited with with uh, Sam Jackson. Okay. and himself, and it was like the only other thing since then, just to fill in that blank that we left open. So
0: it's, it's all in all, isn't it? Uh, it's, you know, it's an exciting can because it's sort of like you know, I'm going with no expectations, you know, I'm, I like to write my diaries and take pictures and see the movies and I'm lucky enough that I get to do it. This might be the last year that I get to do it, maybe, who knows but... Didn't um, say that. Well, you never know how it all goes, you know, it just seems sort of like...
1: One thing that happened last year that was a, that was horrible. That it was a, such rainy weather, right? Wasn't it just yes. raining the whole time? And so not only did that make it hard to get around and to try to wait in line for tickets and everything, but it really inhibited you and disabled you from taking as many photographs as you, as you, as you like, as you like to take. And I do like take. to,
2: yeah.
1: And but Craig yeah, I'm was sure like, you could have got some great shots if you hadn't been worried about the safety of your camera getting wet.
0: Right, right. <laughs> you but know, Craig but was, was like. Um, uh, he didn't care that it rained because it's like wow i'm in can i don't care and he doesn't know what it's like when it's not raining there and it's a whole different festival like because the, mm-hmm. the people there they make all of their money on on the that this time of year there's another festival that that they have there and one other thing i think where they make money but the majority of their money comes from the can film festival and it's it helps them it's great for them if it's warm and people are out because a lot of these are like sidewalk cafes and street vendors and you know it's it's a really lively vibrant town and when it rains everything shuts down so they all lose money even though you know all the restaurants lose money um you know all the sidewalk businesses lose money the vendors lose money everybody loses money because no one's out walking and shopping which is Mm -hmm. what they need them to do so the, it's it's all happy in Cannes when it's not raining. It's it's okay. It's doable when it does rain. It's fine. You can work through it, but it's so much better when it does, and I really hope that for, I think last year it rained, the year before it rained, and the year before it rained, so I'm really hoping
1: this wow, year it Wow, but it, it was doesn't. really, really bad last year. I remember just yeah. how dismal it was.
0: Yeah, like Craig waited in line for, what movie was it? Blue is the Warmest Color? Blue is
1: the
2: Warmest Color, yeah. and I didn't, I didn't have a coat on. I didn't have an umbrella. And I just sat there and got soaked, and by the time I <laughs> By the time wasn't to quit. I was already soaked, so getting an umbrella or a coat at that point would have been a complete waste of time. It just because right. it, 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 it didn't start out like it was going to be a heavy rain, but it just it just kept getting heavier and heavier and, and didn't stop.
0: Yeah, and you but have to.
2: It, it to me that added to the whole experience. It made it more of a uh, uh, more of an adventure kind of thing, you know. And it's actually one of the one of the more memorable experiences that I had because one of the because I was I was first in line and I was actually. Because I didn't really like the director's previous film that I'd seen that much, I almost bailed. But I had such a good spot in line, I decided I didn't want to give it up. And um, one of the um, the the line guard people came down and offered me his umbrella, and we sat there and just had a conversation. I talked to him, and he'd been to, he'd been doing this for several years, and it was just kind of it was an interesting little bonding moment with one of the people working the festival because it was raining.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh...
0: Yeah, so we'll see. We'll see. I'm excited. I wish I was. You know, we were all really rich and we could just go and have a good time and party on a yacht or something. That would be the <laughs> ideal way to go to Cannes, you know.
1: But it um, would be a different way to go. But I think it would also be kind of an isolated, insulated way to do Cannes too. And I think that probably the way you could do, you guys do it, is is more fun because you're down. Yeah. In the, thick, in the thick of it.
0: We don't tend to eat... I mean, I don't... When I'm there, I don't tend to eat out that much because it's so expensive. So, like, maybe one really good, maybe two dinners there. But the most of the time, you just sort of... For me, anyway, when I go, I tend to shop at the market and just sort of eat the food that, that I can bring home and cook and buy a sandwich here or a sandwich there. But, you know, if you, you'll go broke if you go out to dinner for every meal, you know? Mm. You I have to find a way out. around that. Yeah, you do. <laughs> Unless you're expensing it like a lot of these people do. Like, for instance, Steve Pond, he's he's going this year and he's with the rap, and they, uh, they'll pay him so he can go eat any. And, and I remember I was having lunch with Anne Hornaday. She, she brought me to lunch and, um, and she Washington post pays for all her meals, you know, but if you're like us, you're going on your own dime. So you, you, you tend to be a lot more careful. So it's not as fun to go as it would be as in, you can spend all the money you want on all the wonderful food that's there, but so what? I mean, you're there, you know, who cares? It's great to be there.
1: Well, one thing I, I wanted to ask you all to keep an eye out for to, or at least to listen for and to see what, what people were saying about it is the disappearance of Eleanor Rigby. There's been some controversy too about that, about the different cuts. I think there's been two or three different cuts. Uh, one time I think there was a four-hour version and they were going to release it as two different movies and I think now it's been reduced to one movie so that's really discouraging and disappointing but it's uh, Jessica Chastain and James McAvoy. Mm. and uh, but so it, it, it had a lot of potential when people were first talking about it maybe la- I forget where maybe at TIFF last year to Toronto last year I think but um, so I'm interested to hear what people are saying about the, the way that it's been restructured if, is a nice mm-hmm. way to put it
0: yeah um, alright so that's a good good note to end the Cup. hopefully we're going to try to do a podcast from CAN and talk about it a little bit midway through maybe we'll do another one just so you guys oh, cool. can hear what's going yeah. on and uh, but now we'll move into 2006 if anybody's still listening <laughs>
2: So uh, And even if you're not, we're going to do it anyway. How do you like that? Right. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, okay, so 2006. Um, 2006 remains my favorite Oscar year of all the years that I've <laughs> been blogging about the Oscars, and that's because it was, it was a happy ending for me. Um, this is coming out of the year of Brokeback Mountain, um, losing to Crash, which was probably the worst Oscar year. Uh, Social Network, King's Speech, that's a close second. But... Um, you know you 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 live the whole year and you expect that the best movie is going to win and and this year i you know i had had gone through the oscars with gangs of new york and martin scorsese and the aviator and martin scorsese and i've seen him lose crushingly both times so the departed comes along right and it's a huge hit and it's a great movie and i watch it and i'm thinking oh my god this movie can win best picture this is good enough to win great reviews great box office um and Martin Scorsese, right? But the problem, Leonardo DiCaprio gets shot in the head at the end. So that had all the Oscar bloggers saying, no way is this movie going to win Best Picture. Some of them didn't even think it was going to be nominated. Warner Brothers certainly didn't. They had no idea what they had. I, I had a conversation with them about it, actually, during the Oscar season. And I was like, "And I, by that time, I knew Departed was going to win. And I said, do you guys know the Departed are not running any ads? And she's like, yeah, well, we don't really think that movie's going to do much. The Oscar. <laughs> wow. So it was a great year for me. I would love to see it the best movie win. It was easily the best of the five. And one of Martin Scorsese's best films. I just watched it again the other day, and it's phenomenal. And a lot of that is to do with William Monaghan's screenplay and the, the wonderful, ongoing, fruitful collaboration of Leonardo DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese.
1: Isn't it weird though that didn't didn't uh, Little Miss Sunshine win the PGA that year? And yep. how people freak out when something like that happens, and all of a sudden people are thinking that Little Miss Sunshine could win Best Picture. When I was so outside it at that time, it was just before that I, that I joined you on the site, Sasha, and I was looking at Little Miss Sunshine and thinking, no fucking way is a, a movie like Little Miss Sunshine going to win Best Picture. But people were abso- absolutely, you know, jumping ship on The Departed and yep. other movies and saying they that oh, because that. it won producers guild that it it had a shot
0: well then the directors didn't get nominated for best picture and that took it out of contention Mm -hmm. the thing is is people were doing that year the same thing they did with the catherine bigelow year which was they were saying that martin scorsese was going to win director everybody thought he was but then another movie was going to win best picture that was the Mm -hmm. question it was the same with the hurt locker catherine bigelow is going to win director but another movie is going to win best picture but 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 if you're following along you know that the chances of Martin Scorsese getting close to the Oscars and winning Best Director, his fucking movie's going to win Best Picture. And same with Catherine Bigelow, You get that close um, to a woman winning and not give her movie Best Picture, not a chance. The only time that didn't really follow was, was this last year with uh, 12 Years a Slave, and I thought for sure that... Not for sure. I was hoping. But... Um, that, that Steve McQueen would win director and that the 12 Years a Slave would win picture, but they agreed on this split early on with Cuaron taking director and 12 Years a Slave taking picture. That agreed-upon split has only happened one other time in Oscar history, and that was with The Graduate. Uh, yes, The Graduate and um, In the Heat of the Night, when they it was already decided early on that Mike Nichols was going to win director, In the Heat of the Night was going to win picture, and they never really deviated from that, this year, 2006, Scorsese, I think, won the um, the Globe for director, and Babel won Best Picture at the Globe, surprising everybody. Little Miss Sunshine won the SAG, um, and it won the uh, uh, PGA, but it didn't get nominated for the directors. And then, of course, Scorsese won the DGA, which made it a done deal. And um, The Departed really was the best of the five. But I remember people accused me a lot of saying that I, that I tried to throw this race by putting little miss sunshine out kind of the same way i did with american hustle this year is saying it's going to win and it's the front runner and once people start thinking of it as the front runner automatically it stops looking like a movie that that can win because it's just not good enough Mm. um and that's possible i may i may or may not have done that i will (laughs) may or may not admit to having done that but um but yeah the departed was easily the best of the five and, and given that i knew it it couldn't lose
1: Another thing we should mention, too, because we mentioned that you spoke to Warner Brothers and they didn't have a lot of faith and departed because Warner's had another contender that year with Letters from Iwo Jima. And Flags of Our Fathers, right? I don't know. Yeah, Flags from Our Fathers probably, but Letters from Iwo Jima was probably considered to be the more artistic and the one that had the most potential because it seems to me, even in retrospect, that there's more serious in some way. Only when and, it
0: mm. only when the nominations came down early in the year, and I remember again because I was blogging. Okay, right. Yeah, they were okay. both set up that. as being the big Oscar movies. Uh-huh, you know, There right. was Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima, which came out much later. But Flags of Our Fathers didn't do so well, and people were like, "Wow, that's um." But everybody's Oscar focus was on those two movies early on. And when Flags of Our Fathers didn't do so well, uh, Mm. nobody really knew how it was going to go down. But then Letters from Iwo Jima did, and it surprised everybody with a Best Picture, Best Director nomination that year and... Um,
1: it's uh, such a much better movie for one thing and, and it had the advantage of coming out, as you say, coming out really late. It was it pulled the, the Million Dollar Baby Trick where it comes out in February. Mm-hmm. Nobody even gets to see it until February except the Academy members because the release date for the wide release was February 2nd. Yeah, but and it had so, already
0: gotten a lot of really intense press mm-hmm. before it, it was yeah, seen by them. Mm-hmm. It was like already being hailed as a masterpiece and people were really, really into it. Um, and... Also, we have to remember that Dreamgirls was the movie that was also knocked out. And Letters from Iwo Jima kind of took Dreamgirls' spot. Because if you look at 2006, you see the Queen, done deal. Little Miss Sunshine, done deal. Babel, done deal. The Departed, done deal. And, well, the only other kind of glaring omission there is is the one that everybody thought might win and was a big deal early in the year, and that was Dreamgirls.
1: Right. People were saying that about Dreamgirls before they even saw it, just based on the fact of how much they loved the Broadway show. Yeah, right. and the casting and and the uh, director and everything. Everyone thought it had it was going to um, push all the buttons. It was going to check off all the boxes, and it yeah. did get a lot of nominations, but it didn't didn't get best picture.
0: Right, it didn't
1: our best. Record. And another the rare unusual thing that happened um, in two thousand six was that there was a director picture split, uh, or, or or a lone director nomination for. Paul Greengrass. Paul Greengrass for and the United 93. Yeah,
0: and that was another early Oscar contender that, that got waylaid. So it was like Flags of Our Fathers, United. If you go back and you look at people's early predictions like that they would be putting out around this time of year, you'll see you now United 93, you'll see Dreamgirls, and you'll see Flags of Our Fathers as as the top picks. Um, and they mm-hmm. just they kind of fell away once people started to see them. I, United ninety three was kind of like inside Lou and Davis. It was sort of like what when it didn't get picked because it was so critically acclaimed and uh, it just seemed like it was going all the way. But but in the end they picked. Um out of little respect. Miss Sunshine. Little Miss Sunshine yeah. was,
1: the, uh, was the one that didn't get a Best Director nomination, you've already mentioned. So that was the swap right there between United yeah. 93 and Little Miss Sunshine. And Two movies that could not be more different from each
0: other. Right, and Little Miss Sunshine, I think, had that had a really great Oscar story, like the little movie that could. Didn't, wasn't it made on like a, a yeah. shoestring and budget? and
1: Sometimes I think sometimes the Producers Guild I think they really do take the award literally and they nominate for the best achievement in production and I think that that entails how hard it was to get the movie produced and I think that the the production story the backstory behind Little Miss Sunshine really did have that that story that caught the producers' hearts because it mm-hmm. all, all of them have probably experienced in their careers trying to get a movie made and struggling for years and years and finally get it pushed through and it ends it, and a, a hit and so they got a lot of sympathy for that reason. So I think it's one of those situations where the producers liked a Little Miss Sunshine really just based on his backstory.
0: Yeah. I, I was just having one of those wonderful years because every, everybody was split that year. All the pundits were split. The, because the BAFTA went of course over, ass over elbow for the queen. Right? The BAFTA. Mm-hmm. Um, the producers and the actors went for Little Miss Sunshine. A lot of people were still clinging to Babel as the big epic. Um, And Chris Tapley was predicting letters from Iwo Jima to win Best Picture. And the whole time, I just was sitting there going, The Departed is so winning this. It's so winning this. These people are crazy. I was kind of keeping it to myself like I wasn't being out loud about it. But that's, I think, one of the reasons why it was such a satisfying year, because I knew it was going to win. And when it did, I was totally vindicated. And I only had that happen one other time, and that was with The Hurt Locker. And ever since, 15 years, it's never (laughs) happened.
1: And for better or worse... For better or worse, that's what brought me to Awards Daily in the first place because that was the first year that I really started to actively seek around on the Internet to find movie sites that were covering the Oscars because I was really interested. I was really, really excited for the fact that it looked like that Martin Scorsese was finally going to win Best Director, mm-hmm. and I was searching, searching everywhere for someone who would support my my expectation, and I found you. I found yeah. Awards Daily, which was Oscar watch at the time, right? and that's how I ended up you know coming there in the first
0: place. And you could have called it Scorsese watch at the time. Like
1: People think that it's like David <laughs>
0: Fincher watch or black film watch but it's totally <laughs> it was totally this Martin Scorsese watch for years until this moment so it really was a great um, and satisfying thing to see him finally win he was so overdue my god but also mm. The Departed was such a tightly written wonderfully pulled off film and it shouldn't have been because it was a remake everybody said no it's it's not going to win because it's a remake of, a, of, of Infernal Affairs and it's not going to win because it's too violent and it's not going to win because um, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio dies well I tell you what go back and watch that movie which I've seen many many times and just watched recently and that is one tight ensemble of actors like from, from Alec Baldwin to Martin Sheen to fucking Matt Damon who's incredible in it and uh, Matt Damon and, and and Leonardo DiCaprio are kind of these parallel characters and if you watch them the whole movie is about the doubles of them and it's it's all about that the whole thing all the way through good ba- good guy bad guy um, trusted cop, you know, n- cop that nobody trusts. Leonardo's a good guy. People think he's a bad guy. Matt Damon's a bad guy. People think he's a good guy. And the whole thing under Jack Nicholson, who's an incredibly corrupt mob guy, who's also an FBI informant. So it's just every. This is about a world that's totally corrupt. It's about seeking justice outside the law. Uh, it's it's a, an indictment against the Catholic Church. It's brilliant, and it's also about fathers. It's about fathers and sons. That movie. It's really and as
1: far about. as it being in a, in a remake, it was a remake, but it was also an adaptation that was so skillfully done that it that it that it reinvented so much of the original movie and and restruct, re, restructured it for um for for um another for Western sensibilities, you know? right? And yes. by 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 tying it into actual real life. Um, american characters you know right. that actually exis- existed another thing too i mean for a movie that is two and a half or l- more than two and a half hours long it seems to be like 90 minutes long because it's so tightly edited and that's and it was also great to see thelma schoonmaker win another oscar for oh that.
0: my god and if she hadn't won for that she would have won for wolf of wall street but both films mm-hmm. are just so expertly edited he he's really lucky that he works with her she's amazing but mm-hmm. more than that he's Scorsese is one of those directors who's only as good as the writer he's working with, and his movies, the, how great they are, depend on how great the script is. And when he works with Paul Schrader, and and the, when he worked with William Monahan, it's just that was a perfect combination. The William Monahan's dialogue is really rapid fire, and and Scorsese's thinking and directing is incredibly rapid fire, and the two of them together, just um, just you know hit their stride so beautifully, and the movie is just full of. Great music references and wonderful lines of dialogue and, and just really funny little snippets of, of scenes and comedy. Corsese was so relaxed.
2: You sit there with a mass murderer. A mass murderer. Your heart rate is jacked. Your hand steady. That's one thing I figured out about myself in prison. My hand does not shake, ever. Wake the fuck up you broke happens to work undercover for the Boston Police Department. I'm going fucking nuts, man. I can't be someone else every fucking day. Dang. It's been a year of this. I've had enough of this shit. Calm down, all right? Most of the people in the world do it every day. What's the big deal? Well, I'm not them, all right? I'm not fucking them, okay? Exactly. You're nobody. You signed the papers, remember? Now, we're the only two people on the face of this earth that even know you're a cop. How about we just erase your file? Huh? How about that? How about we erase your file, and then bang, you're just another soldier for Costello, open to arrest for I don't know how many felonies, huh? What do you say we do that, Captain? Huh? How,
1: about, uh, I fuck I you, huh? how about I fucking kill you, huh? How about I fucking kill me. you? That was a joke.
2: Come uh, on. It wasn't a joke. Just because you play a tough guy doesn't mean you are when you lace curtain Irish fucking pussy. <laughs> hey, hey, stop
1: it! Break it up! Stop <laughs> it! Fuck. Fuck. fuck you, motherfucker! God damn it! Stop it! That's an order!
2: To take Costello, huh? I mean, what's wrong with taking him on any one of the million fucking felonies that you've seen him do or I've seen him do? I mean, I mean, he murdered somebody, right? The guy fucking murders somebody and you don't fucking take him. What are you waiting for? Honestly, I mean, do you want him to chop me up and feed me to the poor? Is that what you guys want? Yeah, well, that might stick. Will you shut up?
1: We are building a case and it takes time. You know that.
2: You just keep your ears open, all right? No bullshit
0: really just just kind of what he did with Wolf of Wall Street, which is just like now let's show let's show people what you can really do, Marty. And he's like let loose and he can really be a great director. He's not he's not stymied by any sort of convention that he hasn't tried before. He's not trying to really, you know, test his comfort zone. He's in his comfort zone. And it's a beautiful thing.
2: That's the thing about that movie I've always kind of thought that it's he sort of let his hair down with it after several pictures where it almost seemed like he was trying to get an Oscar, like with *The Aviator* and *Gangs of New York*. There was a, a an uptightness to them. There's still, I still love those movies, but there's, it just you can almost feel him trying to get respect. Whereas with *The Departed*, it, it seemed like he didn't give a shit. He's like, screw it, I'm just gonna make a fun uh, genre picture, and that's exactly what he did. And he poured all of his energy into it, and that's why it came out as good as it did. And I think the it sort of let his true self come through in a lot of ways, and that's maybe why it was rewarded when technically more respectable seeming respectable respectable seeming pictures were previously overlooked.
0: Yeah, I mean, you got to look at it when when it comes to making history, which this night did, because it was probably the most beloved um, film preservationist, film professor brilliant film director, often and famously overlooked for the Oscars, starting with uh, with Raging Bull and with, well, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull and Goodfellas, all overlooked for Best Picture. And, you know, these guys know Martin Scorsese. They want to give... That's what people didn't realize then. That's why I get to be smug about it all now, because what people weren't looking at was that they want to give him the Oscar. They wanted to give 12 Years a Slave the Oscar. They want to give Catherine Bigelow the Oscar. They want to do that. The only thing that's going to prevent them is if they don't like the movie. Well, if they like the movie, they're golden, and they liked Mm -hmm. the movie, and that's all they needed to add to I want to give Martin Scorsese an Oscar. And it was a good movie, and it was deserving, um, but the reasons that a lot of my pundit pals were saying for it not winning couldn't match. It's just like with 12 Years a Slave. Can't match the, the the other side of it, which is kind of monumental. The finally giving and rewarding Martin Scorsese, like how good is that going to feel? Well, it's going to feel pretty fucking good. You're going to turn Martin Scorsese down again, mm-hmm. you know? Really? After that, after Taxi Driver and Raging Bull and Goodfellas, you're going to turn him down again
1: for Best Picture. I, no. I will admit, personally myself, before because I wasn't really in the loop at the time, and I was back in December and even November. I was thinking, Departed, as much as I like it, it's going to have a really hard time. Um, Going up against Children of Men and Pan's Labyrinth and what else? And United 93. Because I was thinking Mm -hmm. all of those were going to be nominated for Best Picture. So when Nominations Morning came along and Pan's Labyrinth and United 93 and Children of Men didn't even get nominated, then I thought, well, that's it. The cards were dealt in a way that the, the things I were worried about, the movies I were worried about, didn't even get nominated. So now it's like clear the path it's like clear the runway, Absolutely. you know, departed, it's going to take off.
0: A hundred percent true. Absolutely, exactly
1: Those were the right. movies that I, and that was really kind of brokenhearted though about all three of those movies that I mentioned, Pans, the Labyrinth, and United 93, United 93 and Children of Men that they didn't get the traction and the uh, Oscar love that I hoped that they would, because I loved all those movies very much, more uh, so than the ones that were nominated. Pans
0: Labyrinth did really well with the Oscars. It surprised everybody by winning mm-hmm. cinematography, art direction, um, And what else did it win? Visual effects? Mm, Yes, makeup. mm -hmm. And uh, I thought it won visual effects, but maybe not. So this was the year of the three amigos, lest we forget. This was Inuritu and um, uh, um, Amenabar and uh, um, uh, Cuaron, all -hmm. in the same year at the Oscars. They called them the three amigos. You
2: mean Del Toro, not Amenabar?
1: Del Toro, right. right. Did I say... Uh yeah, I
0: know. Alejandro González Inuritu, um, Alfonso Cuaron, and um, and uh, Guillermo del Toro. Sorry, the three uh-huh. amigos, yeah.
2: Children of Men stung me particularly because... It, and it kind of resurfaced this year when Gravity achieved so much success because I always felt like uh, Children of Men delivered the same in the thrills category that Gravity did, but it also had a stronger... Um, stronger thematic point of view and just it had more I hate to use the word gravity to it but that's Uh it did It, it felt like a heavier more meaningful film to me than than gravity did and it I wish that it had been one of the nominees. And rewatching it again, it's still just as thrilling as it ever was, and it still kind of punches you in the gut the same way that it ever did.
1: And it did have a literary heft to it too. It did have a li- literary gravitas, let's say, instead of right. gravity, because it was written by who's that British um, mystery writer, P.D. James, I think, who wrote Children of, *Children of Men*. Yeah, right. And it was outside of her comfort zone, but it was a really deep, you know. Um, um, examination of what the future might hold and, and so it had it, I really love that movie so much the shocking thing about Pan's Labyrinth and Children of Men is that Pan's Labyrinth won best cinematography because the cinematography for Children of Men was so f- astonishing really some of the right. shots right. in that movie like the long tracking shots that, that um, Lubezki uh, is, is famous for were just blew me away I'd never seen anything like that before
2: and they were they were used for a purpose because they yeah. they heightened the tension of those mm-hmm. action sequences so much without the cutting. It's like you're it's subconscious. You're not even. I, I don't recall sitting there thinking, "Wow, they're not cutting." It was only afterwards when I realized what it was that I'd oh, seen yeah. and why I was so uptight watching some of these sequences. For sure, it, it was they were relentless and they just they never gave you a break.
1: I've watched that ambush scene, that ambush ambush scene, probably, I don't know, maybe 150 times. I just love it so much. And I'm just, it's still just, I still, even though I know now how it was done, a lot of the ways it was done, I just can't imagine if they were able to pull that off like that. And it still amazes watching it
2: again. Yeah.
0: I feel like Babel kind of got a raw deal because. If you look at the three movies by them, I mean, Pan's Labyrinth was one of my favorite movies of the year. I advocated really hard for it. And and Children of Men, although I appreciated it, it wasn't one of my personal favorites, but I know that it it was championed hard by people like Jeff Wells. It was really, really an internet favorite, that one. And it was... People were advocating hard for it and shocked and freaked out when it didn't get any sort of, os- you know, any, the kind of acclaim that they were hoping it would. It was very disappointing. Babel was the only one of the three amigos that really did um, cut through the mainstream. And the reason that has had big stars, it had Kate Blanchett, it had Br- Brad Pitt. but mm. um, And they were promoting it, and, you know, they, everybody loves movie stars. But Babel and Pan's Labyrinth and Children of Men, what an incredible, you know, um, kind of a little mini-revolution there, a new wave. It's sort of like this last year with 12 Years a Slave and Fruitvale Station and The Butler. You People might laugh at that, scoff at it, you know, whatever. But to me, it's like when you see a little movement like that, it's worth paying attention to.
1: Yeah, it's not uh, just a little movement, but suddenly it's such a breakthrough that it cannot be ignored. You've got to not... You, can't, you cannot not... Notice what's happening there right. when something that's never happened before in in Oscar history or in movie history suddenly just burst onto the scene. Then it, it just um, catches your attention for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so. and,
1: and *Pan's Labyrinth* I think may may have suffered a little bit because of the fantasy element. But the more that you, the more times you watch it, and the more that you understand where De, where De Toro was coming from with that movie, because he's always talked about he wants to do a trilogy of. Um, uh, uh, Spanish Civil War, uh, Spanish War trilogy, and that it began with um, what's that ghost story that he did first, Craig? The, I damn, um, I can't the think. of blank. Yeah, the Devil's Backbone. Devil's Backbone. Mm-hmm. He did the Devil's Backbone, and there was Pen's Labyrinth, and and, he, and we ex- hope and expect that he'll do a third one to complete his trilogy. But he has always wanted to do a really serious examination of what was going on in Spain during w- World War II, that really history is sort of overlooked because when we think of world war ii we don't think of spain because spain wasn't really involved in the in the world war but they were having a civil war at the time right Mm. right and and he and the things that he does in pan's labyrinth and devil's backbone make them rise above the genre of fantasy and ghost story in such interesting ways i think
0: yeah for sure i I think
2: i think what counted what 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 hurt Pan's Labyrinth was the darkness and the violence of it because Mm. if you don't know anything about it going in, it starts out like this sort of odd but sort of lovely fairy tale and then it quickly gets really ugly and there's just some really horrible, violent, nasty, almost unwatchable things happening and I think people... The older, probably the older voters and the people who would generally be voting for the in the foreign film category, probably were a little bit turned off by it.
1: It's like watching The Wizard of Oz and suddenly the Wicked Witch of the West starts slicing ears off or something. Exactly, <laughs> you know, because that's what you expected it may be when you first see the little, the little. Um, um, Firefly or whatever it is, uh, uh, what are they, those bugs called? But anyway, you think that it may be like you may be going into Wizard of Oz territory, right? But mm-hmm. then, like you said, it suddenly becomes just really grim and violent and and borderline gory.
0: Mm. Kind of great looking at those movies and that. you know, <laughs> um... it's amazing. But let's talk about some of the duds. <laughs> um, okay, so Good German—that was like people thought that was going to be a big one. That that one kind of bombed. But what, what do you think of that movie, Craig? Because I, I
2: dig it. It's um, it's it hasn't held up as well as I'd hoped that it would, but it's um, it's it's too interesting to completely dismiss. I mean, it's kind yeah. of it's it's Soderbergh's take on the post-war movie, and it's a little bit like Casablanca meets. The third man and it sort of digs into this it it sort of de-glamorizes that whole period and it's kind of a weird dark edgy movie i don't think it's perfect but it's it's interesting and i think it deserved a lot better treatment critically than it got but yeah yeah, it bombed nobody saw it it. nobody cared
0: and and that was uh, a yeah it was a good year for cape blanchett because she had babel she had the good german and she also had notes on a scandal which i i hope i don't know if it's become a camp classic but i hope it has because it deserves to be a hope camp uh, 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 a camp classic a notes on a scandal i hope both of you guys have seen that movie
1: oh absolutely. i did at the time, I
0: but
2: i don't remember really that
0: one.
1: i can't even i can't even think of it as camp it seems like really although i know <laughs> where you, where that because it is so melodramatic and it is so tawdry and scandalous and it is uh, really tawdry really that's the best way to describe it it's but hysterical. That, so that, from, from that aspect i guess it's campy but it it just is so they make it so believable, though.
0: It's fantastic. It's really worth watching. That one, I think, is really going to stand the test of time of all. <laughs> you, you kind of look back at these movies and you see, um, you see a, a, a movie like that, and you know that people are going to be watching it forever after this.
1: Um, it's like you watch that movie and you just gasp, right? You just gasp at what they're trying to, what they do, and what they get away with doing.
0: Yeah, and another another um, another big big kind of big story. I, t- I want to talk about two stories. One is um, is the lives of others versus Pan's Labyrinth for foreign film because it gave Pan's Labyrinth three Oscars, but not foreign. But that was mm. because the rules back then where you had to sit through all the five. Now, of course, you don't. But back then, you did. Um, and the other thing I want to talk about is it's it's now um, how many years since this? It's not quite ten, but but also an inconvenient truth. One. Um, the Oscar that year and that was Al Gore uh, and Davis Guggenheim um, sort of bringing up the the subject of global warming which is absolutely worth talking about today and it it, it won that Oscar and people kind of just forgot about it and now it couldn't be more more pivotal and more urgent um, to pay attention to. Because we had was... a
1: cold winter, so how can there be global warming if we had a cold yeah, winter? I there was snow was... this year, there was snow, so how can <laughs> it be global warming? Mm-hmm. That's the... the sad thing, is that
2: the inconvenient truth was sort of the high watermark of people being concerned about global warming.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. And it's
2: been downhill ever since then. Rather <laughs> than pathetic, isn't it? ramping up our interest in it over the years as things are getting worse and worse, we've moved farther away from it and we've had the the deniers of science. Have expertly thrown up smoke and mirrors, and and now it's not even a thing that that people take seriously anymore in this in this country. The rest of the world is on it, but we're not. It's just no, ridiculous. The Pathetic
1: we're not. thing too that if it hadn't been Al Gore, but if it had been like somebody like like Pat Robertson or somebody talking about global warming, then maybe people wouldn't wouldn't have blocked everything to try to right. to do something about it. Or Patricia Heaton or somebody, you know, had narrated it. But but because it was Al Gore, automatically it has to be evil to to the right yeah. wing.
0: And suddenly, suddenly it's a partisan issue when it really shouldn't be. Global right, warming should yeah. not be. And it's so sad that it is. Uh, another sad thing to talk about might. is is, um, is there were only three animated films that year, Happy Feet easily won. But nowadays you will never see a year with three anymore because the animated films have taken over, and they make so much money now that you're always, from now on, I think going to see at least five.
1: What's the tipping point? There has to be 18 major feature uh, animated so, yeah. films before you can have five, and that's easy easy to do now because oh, there's so yeah. many.
0: But that's all. Mm, yeah. and, and animated films are pretty much all you see. Um, uh, so anyway, um, Lives of Others was was a, one of those surprise kind of shadow films that was like people like Chris Tapley, I remember, and Jeff Wells were seeing it and going, you know, everybody thought Pan's Labyrinth had this thing in the bag, you know, and people were watching the movies going. Lives of Others is going to win. That movie is really, really going to win. It's great, and, and it's unforgettable, and it blows everything else away. It's particularly Oscar-friendly because of the subject matter. And they're mm-hmm. right. It is. It was absolutely all of those things. Great, um, you know, Oscar-friendly, and definitely going to win. I think I was still standing by Pan's Labyrinth to the bitter end, though, when I predicted it.
1: It may be one of the situations, and I usually don't put much stock into the fact that people vote this way, but I believe that enough people do that it can make a difference. There may have been a, an idea that we that they were going to share the wealth because both of those movies are so fantastic that they may have felt like we, we know that we're voting for Penn's Laburn for best art direction and best cinematography and what else, whatever else it won. So let's not give it just everything, but let's also throw a nice tribute to lives of others also. I think I would I would be tempted to fill out my ballot that way if I if I had a ballot.
0: Well, I remember when we saw all the people's ballots this year? It's like they didn't watch a lot of movies. Many of them probably didn't even watch *Pan's Labyrinth*. It just wasn't their kind of thing. They're old and tired. Mm-hmm. And right. *Lives mm-hmm. of Others*, on the other hand, if you're voting for foreign language that year, you had to see you had to see all five. Had to. Yeah. So uh, there's only a certain kind of person that's going to appreciate *Pan's Labyrinth*, and that's not what the Academy demographic is. The academy demographic is absolutely more favorable to a film like *Lives of Others*. Absolutely, hundred percent. That's like an old-fashioned Oscar movie. That one. That's the kind mm-hmm. of movie Hollywood doesn't make anymore.
1: You know. Right, but it's, and it's the kind of movie that have that have always won best foreign language film.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> because it's like a socially significant yeah. examination of a difficult time in history.
0: Absolutely, hundred percent true. It's it's old school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? But great, great movie. Can't say it's not. It's a wonderful film. Incredibly moving, intricately written. If it had had more hype heading into the race, it might have. It might have today. If that movie was out, it would have been in the best picture race very easily because it's so good. It would just. It's so much better than the kind of crap that you see now. Mm-hmm. But um,
1: so anyway, I would say probably for me the 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 tw- triple pinnacles of the year were probably Penn's labyrinth, *Lives of Others*, and *The Departed*. Oh, it's yeah. really especially hard for me to 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 judge which is better between The Departed and The Pan's Labyrinth. I know that may be heresy, but I just have such respect for Pan's Labyrinth, and the more times that I watch it, the more depth I find in it. It's
0: fantastic. It's, There's yeah. just mm-hmm. no two ways about it. It's a fantastic film. All those are really great. These are all good years. This is not an embarrassing Oscar year. This is a good It's, it's, it's a weird year
2: those. for me, because it's all about... I, 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 I'm thrilled that Scorsese finally got an Oscar, but I'm just gonna come right out and say that The Departed is not among my favorite of his films. It feels like, it feels almost like a career achievement award to me. It's great, it's fun, I like watching it, but it's not. It doesn't seem, it doesn't seem as vital to me as some of the ones of his that I really love. Um, Yet, like I said, I'm, I'm delighted that he finally won. But at the same time, this year is all about, for me, movies that got kicked to the curb. I'd already mentioned The Good German getting kicked to the curb. And Marie Antoinette got kicked to the curb. Um, There's another movie called Stranger Than Fiction that was a Mark Forster, quirky, sort of a romantic comedy drama with Will yeah. Ferrell. And it totally just got the crap beaten mm-hmm. out of it because I think it... It begged you to compare it to Charlie Kaufman, which is just a really bad idea. You don't ever want to have to, to, to live up to Charlie Kaufman, and it mm. certainly wasn't Charlie Kaufman. But I think it's held up well, and it's I think it's a it, it's a fun, good movie. But the worst. Offender of them all is uh, David Lynch's Inland Empire. I it's was made, about to say. He yeah. made like $5. Critics didn't take it seriously. And it's the last movie the dude has made. He's mm. not been able to get money. Or I'm not sure if it's because he can't get the money or if he can't drum up the interest or both. If he's just moved yeah. on or if he's heartbroken because. Um,
1: I think
0: financing has got to be it. Nominated. It kicked his ass, that movie, basically. It kicked his ass. He thought, I don't want to go through that again. He was literally on Sunset Boulevard with a cow. David Lynch sitting on Sunset Boulevard trying to advertise to get a nomination for Laura Dern for Inland Empire, which, granted, that's a fucking hard movie to sit through. It's great and it brilliant. I I
1: know that... She- you and Craig are really, really fond of it, but it's been always been a really difficult movie for me to even get my head around. So if I can't get my head around it, imagine what you know an 80-year-old Academy member was going to think of it. <laughs> yeah, forget it. it. Not it's a- rough.
2: It's three hours long, mm-hmm. and it doesn't it doesn't have that. I remember watching it at the time, and I I missed the beautiful, lush cinematography that you normally get from a David Lynch movie. This was done mm-hmm. on what almost looked like consumer-grade video, and it had this really tacky, sharp feeling to it that in retrospect actually works really, really well for this nightmare scape that he's creating, but mm-hmm. it's really hard to watch. And but even if you even if you don't like the movie, you have to admire what Laura Dern does in it because she basically plays three or four different characters. She's playing an actress, she's playing the character that the actress is playing in the film. And she plays this weird hybrid of the two where the lines between them start to blur. And then I think she plays another character who, you know, it just, it's just one of those performances that you just kind of have to admire. And it's a really, it's it's a shame that she wasn't recognized.
0: But one of the other problems with that year for David Lynch was that, you know, he's always gotten a pass from the critics and the critics didn't, give him a pass on this they, they definitely didn't it was it was panned and so if you take a movie that's hard to raise money for impossible to get any Oscar traction for and for the first time ever in your career really I mean your your movie kind of bombs with critics so for David Lynch that was the end of the line you know um but So he's never made a movie since. He's making coffee and making music, which I love his music actually, but I really do wish he'd go back to making films, although I have to say, I don't blame him for not wanting to after his experience with this one. You know, We ask him to be creative, we ask him to be brilliant, we ask him to take chances, and he does do all that. Um, And Well, I mean, I guess I could say Wild at Heart also didn't do too well with critics. It didn't, but he wasn't ready to to throw in the towel. Wild at Heart
2: and Lost Highway both were not Beloved, the way some of his other films were, but at least those have sort of a cult following. Inland Empire, uh. I remember seeing it opening weekend, and I was at the uh, Lemley Sunset Five, which isn't there anymore; it's a, a different theater. But there was like me and like five other people in the audience, and three of them were these annoying frat boy types who were like giggling through the entire thing, like it was the funniest thing that they'd ever seen. Mm. And it, <laughs> it was it was difficult to get in because the kind of movie that it demands that you get inside of its bubble and then it then it can really kind of freak you out. It's like having a, mm. a, a waking nightmare. But I had to struggle against these idiots in the front row, but could still do it because that's how powerful it was to me.
0: And giving it great reviews, Manola Dargis, um and Scott Foundas, Jonathan Rosenbaum from Chicago Reader, and Aaron Hillis from Premiere. Um so it didn't it did get some critics steady behind it but nowhere near enough for for what it needed um, It's it's a weird movie but again like how often do you have a David Lynch? making a movie like that in in film. And it's a shame that the kind of film climate that we have in in the city now doesn't encourage artists to continue that way. Look at fucking France. It's like Jean-Luc Godard. Every one of his movies he makes is like in (laughs) Mm L'Empire. They're all like that. But he keeps making movies, and and Alain Rene, too, when he was alive. I mean, they they encourage their artists to take chances and to flourish, um, even when they don't have exactly a successful hit on their hands. And and we don't hear. We don't. We don't uh, admire. We have a. We have a really. We have a weird culture of success and failure. And that year, people looked at David Lynch, Lynch as a failure, and he hasn't. He never really came back from it. I, someone should write a book about this, actually. David Lynch and Inland Empire, and why why he never makes movies anymore. In fact, maybe I'll write that book. Go for it. But. Um, but yeah, that was a that was a tough a tough thing that happened in 2006. I kind of forgot that that was the year that that uh, David Lynch stopped making movies.
2: Yeah, so that kind of the year it leaves a little bit of a bitter taste in my mouth even though Scorsese finally got his Oscar. It just kind of it, it it's a little when I was when I looked deeply at the year, I was a little disappointed by it overall in terms of the awards and in terms of the movies. Uh, the movies there was a lot of great movies it was just so few of them did as well as i thought that they should or got the respect that i thought they deserved
0: but if you look at it you see that that there was no better movie to win best picture than the departed that's the thing you know like it maybe it didn't you don't think that it was you know the deserving film of the year but of the five nominated it absolutely was the best one
2: absolutely i i still dig the queen i think the queen's a little bit underrated and but
0: yeah can we um, talk about the queen because it's so good
2: but I, I wouldn't, uh, as much as I like it, I would still prefer uh, The Departed to it. I, the Departed is easily my favorite of the five nominees.
0: That's that's what I mean, yeah. It's like that, that was their choice, and they picked the right choice on that right. for the five that, that did get in. Um, but Yeah, let's talk about Helen Mirren. Let's talk about Helen Mirren. She was one of those performances that just... And actually, it was her and uh, Forrest Whitaker that year that they could not be stopped. I mean, they were... They started out the year in their place, and they and, and nobody ever challenged them or took them down. She had no competition at all, and he really had no competition, none. So they, well, I think t- Peter O'Toole was in the mix with Venus, but he didn't. Yeah, have a chance. there
2: was there was some talk that he would finally get his career career achievement award mm-hmm. for Venus, but that, but
1: that movie just wasn't there, though. I mean, no. even though he's great in everything, that movie just didn't have the the substance that to, to, to make it rise above Forest you know, Whitaker,
0: right? And um, uh, Jennifer Hudson also had her spot for, for, for supporting actress, even though there was some Abigail Breslin talk, but it was all going always going to be Jennifer Hudson, especially mm-hmm. as a consolation prize for the failure of Dreamgirls. However, Eddie Murphy was also winning along with her and supporting, and then by the time the Oscars rolled around, they ended up giving the Oscar to Alan Arkin.
2: What are your theories? That's a, It's still kind of a controversial thing that he lost. Everybody kind of assumed that he was going to win. And he lost. A lot of people think it was because he did Norbit, orbit, and I don't really buy that argument. That's the I Jeff don't...
0: Wells argument, and it's a totally yeah. wrong. And so is the argument that Jeff Wells had anything to do with taking down Eddie Murphy when he tried right. really hard to do it. None of those things are true. The truth is, is that they liked Little Miss Sunshine and they wanted to give it something. And right. they also, Alan Arkin. Look at Argo. I mean, he's a he's a he's a really popular, very well known, very famous in the club Oscar dude, right? So. He um, he had it and he had it because they like him and he had a great character that people like. Eddie Murphy didn't really play a great character. It's possible that, that Oscar voters don't actually like him. And you know, Alan Arkin had never won an Oscar. That's still to this day the only Oscar he's won.
2: Which is mm-hmm. a little bit criminal because he'd done some really great work throughout the 70s.
0: Right. So overdue guy in a really likable part, like maybe the most likable in the whole movie, in a really likable movie that had a best picture nomination, and lest we forget, won the sag and the uh, PGA, so that's a lot of support there from the industry overall. Eddie Murphy, a little bit expendable there. Yeah.
2: A little bit expendable, and, and all of the things that were appealing about voting for Adam Arkin all went against Eddie Murphy. I think he's somebody that people didn't take seriously to begin with, and he had a reputation for being kind of an asshole. Yeah. Mm. So pretty much all of the boxes that you could check for Alan Arkin are negatives to Eddie Murphy. So you know maybe if Alan Arkin hadn't been there, Murphy still would have been able to pull it off because I think he does give a really good performance in the film, but Alan Arkin just cancelled him out. Mm,
0: yeah, and uh, it's like uh, Sean Penn and Bill Murray, it was the same sort of thing playing out. But, um, you know, the Queen, Helen Mirren, she is so good as Queen Elizabeth and we talk about we were talking about impersonations earlier and here's a good example of someone who who doesn't look that much like her, but did a really good job acting like her and getting her voice down exactly and um, but but also bringing her own personality to it and making it a real performance. The, the moment she has where her really big sort of moment in that movie is when she's driving and her car breaks down and she has that one-to- one and can't encounter with that big, beautiful buck, you know with the giant horns mm-hmm. and they kind of look at each other. Um, and they, And she has this like kind of moment there where they're both sort of hunted and rare. For people to see, and what are they doing here anyway? And uh, this is a great moment. So, the Queen was about um, the moment after Princess Diana was killed, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And and how she was, how the Queen would handle that, because people gave her so much shit for. They said she was cold, and that she didn't love Diana, and that she um, she didn't say she didn't say anything when she was supposed to. She didn't say it quick enough, and she said right. Behind the scenes, the prime minister, played by Michael Sheen, is pressuring her you know, for politics, for political PR, to say something. And she's, she's stuck in her way. She's traditional. She's saying, no, that's not the way we do it. That's not the way our family does it. That's not tradition. Why do these people care? And it was sort of like about the changing times around the monarchy, you know, sort of like the buck in the forest. It's like the way the world changes around you, and you still stay the same as you were. And uh, Michael Sheen is fantastic as Tony Blair, absolutely amazing. And Princess Diana just kind of hovers around in the background of this kind of odd, haunting ghost, you know, over the proceedings. It's like, wow, the queen, nobody ever saw it coming how much people would love her.
1: How, One thing too about the Queen and Helen Mirren, and the fact that we're talking about impersonations and the, what I what bothers me about them and how they why they creep me out because they're a little bit like wax works figures like Madame Tussauds is that the actual Queen Elizabeth seems to me like animatron animatronic figure, you know, the way that she she just doesn't really seem human to me. But Helen Mirren actually seems more human than the actual Queen. She se- she brought humanity to a person that I don't even that I can't even really imagine going to the bathroom. Yeah. You know? And right
0: and i think that also the the other thing around that that i forgot to say was that that this was kind of about saving the monarchy because i remember the princess die thing was such a big deal that people were saying oh this is going to be the be the end of the
2: monarchy you know mm. That's the thing that's weird about it for me is I'm I, I've never understood the fascination that people, especially in this country, have with the British royal family. I find them all to be a giant snooze. You know, when <laughs> when, when Prince Hare Club had his kid last year, I could not have given less of a shit when that happened. Oh. And yet this is still a terrific movie. And it's a, it's because of the performances of Sheen and Helen Mirren, but it's also Stephen Frears. I mean, here's a guy. Oh, yeah. He doesn't he doesn't have an Oscar yet, does he? He's he's had a couple no. of nominations. But um, from, the, from his, you know, he's, he's followed a s- sort of a similar trajectory to Mike Lee getting his start in, in TV. Mm-hmm. But um, My Beautiful Laundrette, Prick Up Your Ears, Sammy and Rosie Get Laid, Dangerous Liaisons, The Grifters, mm-hmm. uh, High Fidelity, Dirty Pretty Things, and then The Queen. It's just like a varied, interesting, unpredictable set of films, and they're all terrific
0: yeah i love the grifters so much
2: that's probably my favorite of all of his but yeah they're all good
1: talking about mike lee and stephen frears and and ken loach that's another triumvirate of directors and another interesting thing about 2006 is that in 2006 ken loach made the one that shakes the barley—is that mm. the name of it? The one that yeah. shakes yep. the barley, and that one, *Palm Dort can let you. Oh
0: wow! Yep. No kidding! Wow.
2: And it's good. It's hard, hard to watch, mm. and depressing, mm. but it's really, mm. really good.
0: Huh. Ah, oh, interesting. Um, yeah. So, all in all, yes, the good, the bad, the ugly of two thousand six. I feel like it was kind of a turning point because, if you only have three films, animated films, you know, you really are talking about a different time. Mm. at the movies um and it feels to me like there was so much variety even still with the movies that were shut out like even though you had inland empire being made you had movies like um you know borat was that year um and notes on a scandal which had two really strong female leads um a lot of failures like the black dahlia for instance was considered a failure at the time uh but a lot of trial and error a lot of throwing things on the wall to see what sticks and Back then, TV hadn't really completely taken over like it has now with the gold, new golden age of television with shows like um, Mad Men. I think Sopranos might have been going on back then, but um, was it? Do you remember? I don't remember. But yes, I think so, Sopranos, yeah. So yeah. Mm-hmm. so, yeah, Sopranos. But but Sopranos kind of paved the way. Oh, and, and then, of course, The Wire. Shows like that sort of paved the way for, for the kind of great things we see on TV now where it's kind of surpassing. You know, yes, Godzilla is going to be fun and everything, but how how deep, how in depth can you get about writing about it? Like, how deep can you analyze the the you know psyche of people, you know, of culture by looking at at this movie? It's really escapist. It's escapist fun. It's entertainment, but you have to look to TV now for to find that kind of depth. If you look at two thousand six, you see that depth being tried at the cinema still. You know, failures. Yes, people look at these movies. A lot of them, and they. There uh, there a lot of them are reasons why movies like that don't get made because they did fail because they did cost a lot of money and they didn't make back that money or they didn't get awards. And I don't think people realize at the time how dire that was because how things are changing so fast, you know.
2: We should mention um, Sarah Pauli, who directed away from her this year mm. with Julie Christie about the uh, Alzheimer's.
1: Uh, that was 2006 but was it not eligible for the oscars until the following year because Uh, julie christie was nominated for best actress but i believe that was in 2007 but you're right to bring it up because yeah it was
2: it was was a festival player in 2006 you're right i do that all the time that's what i hate about
0: no i do that too um Um, you know um little children was this year and (laughs) little children is such a weird movie like I it, love that movie I know I do too yeah. talk about a taking chances kind of thing like that's Todd Field right so he had had yeah. a success with In the Bedroom which was um, which was much more Oscar friendly than Little Children which was biz- Little Children is totally bizarre but it's so fantastic like it it's it's all about the anthropology of human sexuality and it, it dwells in so many different areas it has like weird pedophilia which poor jackie earl haley what an awful <laughs> what an awful part to have to play mm-hmm. oh my
1: god and he's poor so guy. good in it though. he's
0: so good but that that masturbating scene oh never I never get that out of my head and then wonderful kate winslet as like the kind of you know heavy eyebrow dowdy housewife who, who has an affair her weird husband who's stuck with that um i forget the name of the lady the porn star that he's obsessed with and he orders her underwear and he has her underwear on her face he's masturbating and the wife walks in <laughs> and then there's um there's a uh, jennifer great jennifer connelly um uh and her insanely gorgeous husband what's that name, guy's name patrick wilson patrick wilson
1: <laughs> and
0: um who gets to have sex with Kate Winslet, by the way, it's like hello, afternoon delight. Isn't
1: that something? <laughs> though, I mean, when we do finally get an American movie that it deals with sexuality is so perverse and kinky and twisted yeah. and warped that that's the, that's that's the way that Hollywood wants to uh, remark and observe, make observations about human sexuality, all of the all of the worst and strangest aspects <laughs> of it. I mean, I don't mind it a bit, you know. I mean, that's part of it, but, but it seems like that that you that they can't just go a little bit with the sexuality they have to mm. go to the opposite extreme it's either no sex or the weirdest sex you can yeah. imagine
0: but what happened with todd field that year is that he had had such huge amounts of success with little children uh, with uh in the bedroom that mm-hmm. little children came along and it was a risk by him to make that he was doing one of those things where he's trying to make something different kind of like jc Chandor did with all his lost and and nobody you know it, it did a little bit here but it didn't do it didn't do as much as you would expect because it did give people the heebie jeebies. Like even still, the sexuality in that movie wigged people out enough that they just couldn't go there. And it is, it's creepy. And they have the the best thing he has the narrator um, from Frontline, the the journalist guy who does the voiceovers in frontline narrating the, the um the goings on of the strange humans in this kind of strange little town and um, and all their weirdness about poor Jackie, the scene in the pool. Oh God. And, um, the, the great thing it brings up is how women mothers sometimes tend to fall in love with their children. That's why it's called little children, both, both for that and the, and the pedophilia thing. But so Patrick Wilson is like, shut out. And, you know, you wouldn't believe how many men I talked to where that's the case where, they're like, well, once she had the baby, she lost interest in me. <laughs> and biologically speaking, that's the way it's supposed to go, you know, impregnate the female, and move on to the next. And the female yeah. very nurturingly and lovingly raises the child, you know. <laughs> because unless you're a mother and have had a baby, you don't know what it feels like to feel that kind of love. And the love from Or or a penguin. A penguin. <laughs> oh <what> a penguin. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're um if you're a mom and you know what it's like to have that fulfilling love from a child, you know, it totally trumps husband love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that movie addressed that and most movies I don't think ever go there cuz it's a patriarchy we live in so no one would ever mm-hmm. dare to suggest that men are are sort of only worth the value of their <laughs> sperm.
1: Nobody wants to admit it. <laughs> I think a lot of guys would probably be happy just satisfied with that though I mean they probably are just okay with that
0: yeah maybe they don't like being trapped as the <laughs> I have to be the family man you know yeah. why can't I just go out and, and, f- and further my seed like I'm intended
1: uh, sow my oats wild oats <laughs> but I miss Todd Field and I'm glad to hear I mean it seemed like to them for years every interesting movie that came along it seemed like Todd Field was attached to it to a direct and it would fall yeah, through yeah I know like, like, like Blood Meridian for instance which I don't know if that movie can oh, ever be made god, But god I he hope was, they make was, it but to think about Todd Field directing Blood Meridian just still gives me the chills. And he's doing another movie that's in development that we've heard about for I think I mentioned it a couple podcasts ago called Creed of Violence, which is pretty much the same t- tone and style of a western as Blood Meridian. God, it, um,
0: Ryan, you're right. Our, I didn't realize that he hasn't made a movie since Little Children. That's a no, long it's incredible time.
1: It's been, it's been a how many years? 8 years, right? 9 wow, years nearly. Dude. But you know what he's directing that you and you and I both love the novel Beautiful Ruins, Sasha. Oh yeah. He's, he's, he's attached to direct that. But maybe so he'll get
0: dumped again like all those other
1: ones. could be just never I don't know what the problem is whether he whether his whether his proposals and his to and his pitches to the studios are just too much too out there maybe because it would seem from his previous movies that he does probably has some out there ideas about what he wants to do with material. And maybe, maybe they think it's a, they know he's talented, but when he p- presents his proposal to them, they think no, we need to find somebody else. Yeah. Gonna... I
0: mean, I think he's that rare breed of, of director who actually really cares about quality. And I bet you anything, he's been given a lot of shit scripts and he's because of the success of little children, because it was so critically acclaimed, he knows what that feels like. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. In the bedroom. Yeah. Um I don't think he wants to take on the shit movies. Like they probably he probably gets movies offers like Godzilla things like that. I'm not saying it's a shit movie, but you know what I mean? Like they, right. they probably mm-hmm. want him to direct those kind of films. The movies that will make money. And
1: that's mm-hmm.
0: probably what he's been getting, but he's probably been holding to his guns and saying, "No, I want to direct something I think is going to be really good and important, you know." I'll bet you that's the case with him.
1: Yeah, he's one of our American artists that I think is probably really under undervalued and under Underutilized, you know, in in the way that Terrence Malick um, almost in was for a long time, until until Terrence Malick started churning movies out right and left.
0: You've been listening to episode 65 of Oscar podcast with Craig Kennedy from LivingInCinema.com, Ryan Adams and Sasha Stone from AwardsDaily.com.